0: Day, folks, I hope this day finds you well and flourishing and happy and not too politically depressed. Um, today, I wanted to do something a little bit different. I wanted to do a sort of cultural analysis of a few of the pressing issues of our day that I don't think are going anywhere. Um, they constitute, among other things, a deplorable indoctrination in our universities that are taking place, the transing, querying of our disciplines. Talk about that a little bit more later. Um, The pushback that Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida is receiving from refusing to sanction uh, AP Black Studies programs in Florida schools. I'll say why I side with him on that issue, the Black conservative. Um, a reparations panel is making its way in California in order to pass legislation for reparations for blacks. And folks, I think by 2025, whether the right or the left is in power, uh, whoever holds the House, Senate, whatever, this is going to be a national movement that is going to gain massive traction on the same level and with the same kind of implacability and intransigence that the trans movement holds today. Um, Perhaps, you know, one of the questions I'm going to pose later on is, you know, reparations is predicated on white people paying back black people for the wrongs of slavery and the ongoing repercussions of slavery today. But one of the questions I'm going to pose is, what do African Americans owe America? And of course, I want to address the um, Ty Nichols that is dominating the news cycle, rightly so. Um, I'm going to take a particular position on this that might be uh sort of surprising to some people. You are listening to the Jason Hill show. I am Jason Hill, and if you like the show, um, if you want to support the show, you can always make a donation by hitting the link below and following the instructions, and it will be greatly appreciated. Um So I look forward to our conversation. It's a one-way conversation today because I don't have any guests. But I hope that you'll enjoy the show and I'll be right back. No, I think that The killing of Ty Nichols has nothing to do with white racism and it's a horrific continuation of black-on-black crime in the United States of America. In one sense it does have something to do with racial profiling by blacks that has nothing to do with the racial profiling of of white people, that white people have of black people. But I think the attempts to portray the brutal beatings of Ty Nichols, a black man, by five black Memphis police officers that resulted in his death as a racial issue fails on one account. Now, several of the commentariat and the punditry on the left have stated that blacks are not immune to internalizing the racist attitudes of whites, that they have attempted to draw a correlation between this case and other cases involving white officers accused of police brutality. against Blacks um, by implying that many Blacks sort of, you know, unconsciously absorb racist, white, supremacist views of other Blacks and then enact them against their own race in nefarious ways. But I contend that the beatings that resulted in this young man's death is a case of Black-on-Black crime. Okay, it's a straight-up Black-on-Black crime. Those five Black police officers constituted a group of feral thugs who have taken their thuggish sensibilities and unleashed them against an innocent victim. And this is the trauma, okay, that Blacks in many cities suffer on a daily basis from gang members. This is what I see in Chicago where I live. I witness this as a recipient of the news. I don't live in those areas where that's happening, but I also live in an area that is becoming increasingly crime-ridden by the infestation of these gang members who infiltrate neighborhoods such as mine, you know, very good neighborhoods in the DePaul area. Um, So anyway, those officers, I think, constituted a gang of sadistic, amoral hoodlums who committed a hazing ritual by death, which is a constitutive and lethal feature of the identity of individuals in gangs in the United States of America, right? It's further galling that people would attempt to blame the cultural conditions of Black life on white neglect, for example, rather than state the putatively obvious, which is Nichols was killed by a gang of super predators who have disgraced the honorable profession of law enforcement. Right? So, acting on their own volition, not as cultural automatons, they chose to kill him because. They chose to act as authentic representatives of their broken culture. But the beatings that resulted in Nichols' death is a form of racial profiling. Blacks creating their own style of racially profiling other blacks for murder. It is the most systemic form of racial profiling that exists in the USA today. And here, black men in particular target other black men as homicidal victims, as prey to be annihilated. So black-on-black crime is a national security disaster and risk. And it betrays, I think, a deep form of self-hatred that exposes itself or expresses itself in a sort of homicidal rage that turns that turns mainly against uh, black people. So what else do I want to say? Oh, I'm looking for this. The, yeah, here it is. The Department, according to the Department of Justice... The offending rate for Blacks, the number of Blacks who commit homicide as a percentage of the population, was almost eight times higher than that for whites, and the victim rates six times higher. Most homicides were intraracial, 84% of white victims killed by whites and 93% of Black victims killed by Blacks. So racial profiling by other blacks is systemic and pervasive in the black community. I mean, one hears it in the music, okay? In rap music, hip hop, hip hop music, most of it, the majority of it, where black gang members uh, or where black gang lifestyle, murders, sex exploitation, explicit and graphic sexual depictions of blacks, drugs, violence, are routinely celebrated in the black community. And there is, as far as I can tell, no other aesthetic analog in any other culture. Not where members of a race or ethnicity celebrate and encourage each other to murder their own kind, to hypersexualize each other, sell, steal, consume drugs. Not where a lifestyle predicated on the degradation of one's in-group is a constitutive feature of the culture. Now appearing on Meet the Press on Sunday, January 29th, um, just this past Sunday, 20, 29, 2023, um, Republican Representative um, Jim Jordan um, of Ohio lamented, he lamented the beatings of Tyra Nichols at the hands of the five police officers. And speaking with toast Chuck Todd, the Republican Ohio's, uh, said, I don't quote, I don't know that there's any law that can stop that evil that we saw before he added, but no amount of training is going to change what we saw in that video. And Jim Jordan s- got slammed for being particularly offensive and making remarks about tyrannical beating and so on and so forth. But he's been since criticized for being offensive and insensitive in making that comment. But I think, I think that Jim Jordan has a point. Evil cannot be legislated away. It can be punished when it violates the rights of others. But the brokenness and the evil that those officers carry within them are part of their shared humanity. With full aforethought of malice, okay, they executed a beating they knew would kill a slightly built man. Now, at least, no law, at least, in a free society can stop the aesthetic debauchery, the moral and spiritual bankruptcy, and the furality run amok in the black community in the United States. No law can stop that. Now, in this critically acclaimed book, Between the World and Me, the much celebrated and overrated African-American writer Ta-Nehisi Colts, who the left holds up as some sort of James Baldwin, tells a very chilling tale about of police brutality against his black friend, a man called Prince Jones. Only it is a case of black police brutality. In fact, in his entire book, not once, okay, not once does he write about being um, hurt by white people. Not once. Um, His... I'm I'm trying to, I'm actually, I'm looking through the book here. No, I was just looking at my notes. Quotes his derogation, okay? His derogation of black agents is appalling. The police officer who killed his friend, Prince Jones, was black. Prince Jones was shot and killed by a police officer who claimed that Jones had tried to run him over with his Jeep. All right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Coates himself <clears throat> writes of a, a black schoolyard bully who first apprised him of his place in the world by revealing a gun at his waist. And Coates, Ta-Nehisi Coates, notes that in brandishing the gun, the black bully was letting him, letting it be known how easily he, Coates, could be selected for death. The second person who inflicted physical abuse against Colts was not a white person, but instead his father who claimed, either I can beat him or the police. Okay. So this man never went through any kind of, he wrote this book, Denigrating America, talking about America being built on the backs of backs of, of black people, that the American dream itself is racist because it's, uh, it's, it's, built of, it's built on a set of framing narratives created by white people to keep blacks outside the ambit of, of American greatness and so on and so forth. Um, and he's extolled for basically telling white people that they're pieces of shit. All right, so what has any of this to do with internalizing structures of white oppression? Let me just say Jews, the Jewish people, the most persecuted people on the planet have always taken responsibility for their suffering and have never considered themselves victims, even after the Holocaust, okay? I mean, probably when you think about the intention behind it to eradicate a people from the face of the earth, probably the worst thing that ever happened in the history of humanity. They never went around looking for reparations, although they, more than any other people, deserve reparations. But more importantly, what I want to say is that they have never internalized white racist stereotypes of themselves and used it as an excuse to murder other Jews in the world, anywhere in the world that they have lived and where they face severe persecution, prosecution, and systemic oppression no i've always I've always maintained <clears throat> that the over democratization of all spheres of life leads to a breakdown of standards quality and ultimately a heightened sense of existence it leads to vulgarity mediocrity and appeals to the lowest common denominator in each person because over democratization disavows rational discrimination it allows everyone into the future any kind of Rational vetting that's going to lead to rational discrimination is and it's forbidden. So perhaps Jim Jordan was speaking elliptically because he knew if he spoke openly, he might be rebuked and censured. Now, yes, there are good people, there are good police officers who emerge from a broken and bankrupt culture. One cannot steep oneself too deeply in stereotypes, but stereotypes hold some degree of truth to them the gang of five that killed Ty Nichols come from a bereft culture. And I think a division of more labor needs to occur on all fronts. Many in our society seem to think that misgendering a trans person is the worst thing that you can do to another human being. I was told that. It's the worst thing you can do. A woman told me, a trans woman told me, I don't know if she was trans, I don't know what the hell she was, but she said it's the worst thing you can do to somebody. Or that It seems to me that in a culture where Black seems to be represented everywhere, that white supremacy penetrates every public sphere of life, Um, that this is the view. I think that Black people are represented everywhere, but we we live in a culture where it's, it's claimed that white supremacy rears its head in every sphere of life and is keeping Black people back. Um, you know how I feel about that. If you're in America, black, white, Asian, brown, whatever, you're privileged, shut up. But I think laser-focused attention needs to be aimed at a parallel society that's existing concurrently in the United States of America, okay? And when we speak of black American culture, we're speaking not of many cultures. We're talking about a culture that is broken, bereft of values, moral heft and sustained leadership. It is self-destructing. It is a thug culture that I think today contributes little of any intellectual, aesthetic, or moral value. The Gang of Five officers are of this culture. They are its most eloquent manifestation of its ethos. They cursed and swore with profanities as they threatened Nichols. Now, I think until most of us admit that when, when asked, what comes to mind when you think, when we think of Black culture in America today, many of us would rather not say because the answers are stark, dark, and devoid of anything we could care to pass on to future generations. So we should not be surprised that thugs dressed in uniform who kill are no different than the ones with their pants hanging below their waists who roam the streets terrorizing innocent citizens. The Gang of Five just contributed to the growing statistics of those Americans who contribute most to crime waves spreading across urban America. Because they committed gang warfare against an innocent person. That's what they did. Congressman Jordan is right. He's correct. There might not be any laws to eradicate the evil depicted in the videos killing Tyre Nichols, They are, there are, however, radical solutions that can be entertained, solutions our society may rather not be ready to consider and implement because they might ask us to ponder the question of who gets led into the future and who remains outside the realm of admission into civilized society. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the madness that's going on in our institutions of higher learning. Welcome back to the show. I'm Jason Hill, and you're listening to The Jason Hill Show. Well, what can I say about our universities, folks? I mean, I I think that to sort of give you a breakdown of everything that's going on would, to use my favorite term, turn you all into statisticians of gutter trivia. Um, I'll give you some highlights and then I'll break down some actual courses that are being taught in universities which are going to shock you. Um, I mean, we have faculty and staff embracing the transgender medical medicine curriculum in colleges of medicine at the University of Cincinnati. We have the now familiar idea being promulgated that math, science, and um, grammar are racist. This is no common coin of the realm there is a, there's a push to coerce people into a belief system that they may not agree with by forcing them to declare their pronouns at meetings, class, discussions, and lectures. Now, if one of my students asks me to call him or her them or they, I will do so because I, I just don't, I, I want to respect the person, but I'm not going to wear my pronouns on my sleeves and announce my pronouns to everyone on gender spectrum I identify as a 10 when it comes to male I don't think my gender identity is fluid Um, so and I expect people to just assume that I am what I look like which is a man I am 100% male there's nothing about me that feels like a female and um, that doesn't mean that I don't have female qualities we all do male and females have, but primarily fundamentally deep in my soul. I don't feel like a woman. I feel like a man. And I expect people to just assume that my morphological features correlate with my gender. I look like a man. I am a man. All right. Um, So there's... I'm not going to be coerced into thinking that you can change your gender just by saying that you're a woman if you're born a biological male. And where my pronouns or, or announcing my pronouns is a tacit way of endorsing an ideolo- ideological movement, transgenderism, that I just don't buy into. Of course, we hear the ever and never ending mantra on college campuses now. It's almost like a pay and prayer That we live on stolen land, that we must decolonize that land, re-indigenize the land, and return it in some sense to its alleged proper owners. So let me, I just keep on telling people, we don't live on stolen land. This country was founded on land treaties, purchases, bargains, trade, and war. There was a war for resources, and the Native Americans came in second. They lost the war. Boo-hoo, big deal. All civilizations are a clash between one or two or more stronger civilizations or societies. The technologically inefficient or an inferior civilization loses. You look at any civilization that has ex- ex- existed on the face of the earth, and you point to one superior civilization that was not forged in the crucible of war. I just, I I don't see it. Um, And the fact is that while they were being led on the Trail of Tears, that is so sentimentalized, it's a sentimentalized trope in our society, the Native Americans brought along their black slaves with them. Yeah, they owned slaves. And so on that Trail of Tears, Well, it's not mentioned in the history books is that they brought their slaves with them. Right, Um, And until the 1924 Indian Citizenship Act, most of them, if not all of them, were living as war refugees on conquered land. So did the Americans commit them to genocide and wipe them out? No, they did a very benevolent thing by granting them citizenship. All right, then there is the critical whiteness or abolish whiteness courses on campus, which has as its goal, annihilation of white people as a precondition for black flourishing. Now I must tell you that these programs are populated, sometimes often created by progressive white, self-hating whites, um, with blacks playing a very minimal role in the background. I've seen the creators of these critical whiteness studies. Many of them are white people. And now critical race theory is everywhere. It suffuses all disciplines. The term isn't even used at all. Its so, it's, so, its premises and its tenets are framing devices for how educational programs themselves are designed. So what we find is that in many of America's sort of um, top colleges and universities, they're offering courses designed to advance a left-wing agenda to malign Christian and conservative values and shut out ideological diversity. So here are some courses, folks, that are being taught in colleges in this country. Uh, that's called Queering and Transing of Biblical Texts, among other things. So at University of Michigan, there's an eco Feminist Art Practices course. At University of Minnesota, Marx, that is Karl Marx for today. At Northwestern University, Unsettling Whiteness. At Swarthmore College, get a hold of this one. Queering God, Feminist and Queer Theology. Swarthmore College, Queering the History of Emotions. Middlebury College, American Misogyny, Latinx Sexual Dissidence and Girl Attention at Davidson College. Queering Childhood, Panoma. Hmm. Queering Childhood. Okay. Global Capitalism and Racism, University of Tennessee. Humanity are nah, blackness, gender, resistance, and memory monuments at Brown University. Rainbow Republic, American queer culture from Walt Whitman to Lady Gaga. And one of the most unsettling classes from a Christian perspective may be Swarthmore's religion class called Religion 033 Queering the Bible. And here's a description, folks, of the course this course surveys the queer and trans reading of biblical texts it introduces students to the complexity of constructions of sex gender and identity in one of the most influential literary works produced in ancient times by reading the bible with the methods of queer and trans theoretical approaches this class destabilizes the long held assumptions about the bible and religion says about gender, and sexuality. And there's a similar course at Panoma College called Queer Theory and the Bible, and here's what it teaches. This course will look at how the Bible can be read productively through queer theory. We will examine biblical passages that are central to prohibitions on homosexuality and the larger discourses of heteronormativity constructed around gender, sexuality, class, national identity, state formation, kinship, children, etc., in which homophobic readings of the Bible emerge. We will also look at the ways in which these discourses and the identities they show up can be queered, as well as at biblical texts that can be read as queer-friendly. This process of queering will allow and require us to approach the biblical text in new ways. Okay. Well... You know, 30-something years ago, it was a long time, when I entered college, left-wing ideologies dominated American universities, and especially the humanities and the social sciences. But one could still get a sort of fair, balanced education by consulting traditional canonical texts that countered the dogma. Free speech was alive on ca- college campuses, and there were hisses and boos, of course, But for the most part, hearing perspectives different from your own was considered essential to your education. And few of us lived in our own curated silos. Now, today, after 27 years of being a college professor and having traveled much of America to lecture, I just am sad to say the situation is not the same, of course. The core principles and foundations that keep us intact, keep our republic intact, that provide our citizens with their civic personalities and national identities that provide us, that pro, that provide us with our sense of um, political identities are being annihilated. And the gravest threat to this country is not illegal aliens or immigrants. It's leftist professors who are waging a war against American teaching or young people to hate this country. Americophobia is alive and well. And our universities have long risked their status as learning sites and they have become national security threats. So we need to defund them. We need to disband them and rebuild them with conservative principles. That is values advocating individualism, capitalism, Americanism, free speech, self-reliance, and the morality of wealth creation. So again, you know, when I when the term Western civilization is equated with white supremacy, racism, cultural superiority, pervasive oppression, and I have students in my class, my political philosophy class in the past, who have refused to study the works of John Stuart Mill or John Locke or any white thinker because they consider them white supremacists, uh, there is no lower level of educational hell. The manifest destiny of the humanities and social science Professor, is to have politicized knowledge supersede truth, objectivity, facts, and genuine learning. And there are many social ills taking place. But the cultural relativists, who rule its turf, would abolish reason, rational argumentation, appeal to traditional canonical texts as evidence for objective truth about our world, and belief in an objective reality. See, when you've got that destroyed and all the trans stuff, all the querying of the Bible stuff, all the sort of perversities that are taking place are possible because you have abolished the precondition that would call those movements into check. Too often, you know, these amoralists these and these relativists derive reason as a sort of Eurocentric creation used to rationalize the existence of colonialism, slavery, and the genocide of native people. But, I mean, ordinarily the best way to counter an intellectual adversary is through a contest of rational faculties, right? So in the old days, we used to say the the contest in the marketplace of ideas, the best ideas will win. And the person with reality on his or her side with the best relevant fact and strongest argument usually wins. But today's scholars in the humanities and social sciences increasingly declare that modern argumentation is a white Western form of domination and linguistic imperialism that silences racial and ethnic minorities and devalue their lived experiences. So you can't argue with people. The only alternative is to shut them down, like what DeSantis is doing. Shut them down, right? So cultural Marxism defined as anti-capitalist cultural critique, is sort of like the educational trope that mediates all forms of learning in today's universities. And it is simply a guise under which to politically indoctrinate students into becoming socialists who will do anything to prohibit freedom of speech on college campuses. So we are witnessing a generation that will not tolerate other perspectives, students who will not hear opposing ideologies. So, socialism advocates ownership and control of the means of production, capital, and land in the community as a whole. It is not a morally neutral system. Any system of governance presupposes an answer to the question, are you a sovereign entity who owns your own life, work, and mind? Is your mind something that can be nationalized and its material contents distributed by the state? Now, socialists think the answer is yes, and they believe the products of one's efforts belong to the community, that the state and society should sort of have a moral and financial responsibility to care for other people's children, and that the most successful and productive people should, not, should be the most penalized. So educational systems that have become such propaganda machines should not be funded by tax paying Americans. We have the spectacle of contemporary Africa, Venezuela, and much of Latin America's evidence of the political calumny of socialism, and we have seen the brain drain of other Western, Western countries that advocate socialism. In those countries, citizens resent the enormous financial costs to them in the form of taxation, and they come to America, to the United States, for fiscal relief. So rejecting canonical texts and their alleged white supremacist authors is related to advancing socialism. Both appeal to a politics of victimology that purportedly only an emergent brand of post-colonial Marxism could solve. Identity politics, victimology, and multiculturalism have reached such astronomical heights in the United States um, that... Universes actually trigger, it should trigger warnings for students who feel oppressed and traumatized because they have to read the writings of living or dead white men. So I want to say if elitist scholars infect the minds of our students with anti Americanism, who will defend America when those who truly threaten us from the outside descend with intent of destroying our republic? So you, who defend or who fund our universities, do so with trust that intellectuals will act in your interest and protect your pro-American values. But you are wrong. Your hard work has been financing people who think they're better than your craft materialism, who think that you, but not they, are complicit in an evil system, capitalism. So I say withdraw your support and leave them to fund themselves. Let them pit their wares on the free market where they will be left homeless. The world you aspired, the world you desired no longer exists in our universities. It lies elsewhere. It lies in the philosophic system waiting to be discovered or created. We're gonna take another short break. Come back, we'll talk about the growing reparations movement. Welcome back to the show, I'm Jason Hill, and you're listening to The Jason Hill Show. Chairwoman of California's reparations panel is actually advocating a wealth tax that would redistribute funds of black residents to black residents rather and those who are descendants of slaves. So Chairwoman Camilla V. Moore in the California Reparations Task Force heard from tax law experts across the United States that testified how white people are more likely to be wealthy. Therefore, any reallocation of funds would benefit the state's black population. Now, this task force was created in 2020 by Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor of California, and established through California AB 3121, a bill that focused on reparations for black citizens. And one proposal is to give out $223,000 $223, in payments to every Black resident in the state. Now, per the 2022 consensus, with 6.5% of California residents identifying as Black or African American, close to 2.5 million people that would amount to roughly $569, $569 billion needed to fund the reparations. Well... As a Black Caribbean immigrant who identifies as a patriot of our great republic, I am often asked why I take such a strong stance against not just reparations, but um, systemic racism, the idea that America is systemically racist against Blacks, critical race theory, diversity, equity and inclusion movements, as they are sort of promulgated today. If I could give an answer standing on one foot in a single sentence, it would be this. All such movements presuppose that by constitutional design, the United States of America is ineradicably racist in its cultural DNA, so to speak, and require a radical political and moral rebranding to remedy the sins of the past. So the reparations movement, for example, overlook the fact that reparations have already been paid to Blacks. The third founding of the United States in the 1964 Civil Rights Act and its various amendments, such as the 1965 Voting Rights Act and other attendant pursuant articles and legal enfranchisements for blacks, including the Equal Employment Opportunity Act of 1972 and subsequent affirmative action programs, I think constitute reparations. I placed reparations for Black Americans into the plethora of affirmative action programs that set aside preferential policies in education and employment for Blacks and women. And the 1964 Civil Rights Act was as revolutionary as the founding of America and the Bill of Rights, because not only did it single-handedly right the wrongs of slavery and Jim Crow segregation, but I think in this unique moment in U.S. history, in arguably justifiably violating the rights of U.S. citizens, it was the most audacious act of cultural and moral eugenics ever leveled against the United States of America. And by this, I mean that it resulted in the broadest moral resocialization and social engineering program of white Americans in the history of this country. The Concomitant moral eugenics was a form, I think, of moral paternalism and intrusion in the conscience of white Americans. It was an abrogation of freedom of conscience and the application of that conscience in concretized material form. So I think the Civil Rights Act of 1964, enacted on July 2nd of that year, was a landmark civil rights and labor law that outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, national origin, and later sexual orientation. It prohibits unequal application of voter registration requirements, racial segregation in all schools, and public accommodations, and any employment discrimination. Under the Act, Congress asserted its authority to to legislate on the various parts of the Constitution, especially to regulate interstate commerce. And it guaranteed all citizens equal protection under the laws, under the 14th Amendment, and exercised its duty to protect voting rights under the 15th Amendment. Now, the target of this 64 Act was as much whites as it was blacks, and not just in the sense of mandating that whites cease egregious practices of discrimination against blacks, but rather that whites become entirely new types of persons, by undergoing a moral makeover. The state had been the biggest manufacturer of systemic racism by creating laws that barred blacks from full entrance into mainstream society. And it had been a great socializer in the formation of the ethos, mores, norms, and values that shaped the sensibilities of whites. So I think, in short, it made it difficult for non-racist whites to be non-racists in their dealings with blacks. I mean, we saw homeowners and hoteliers were not free to sell or rent to whomever they chose, regardless of race. And miscegenation laws prohibited interracial marriage. Conceptions of the good life were vastly limited for blacks based on their racial identities, created not by private citizens, but by the state. And the establishment of racial taxonomies, of miscegenation laws, of redlining policies... Um, and discriminatory housing and school policies were all creations of the state, the biggest and most nefarious enemy of Black Americans who had deputized and socialized ordinary American citizens into a cult of racist practices against their fellow citizens. In granting Blacks fully called to before the law, the state reversed a metaphysical crime it had long been guilty of committing against the former slaves, that is, Failure to apply the principle of legal egalitarian to one group of people for a morally neutral reason, their ascriptive racial identity. Now, as far as the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement goes, the real goal here, I think, is equity. And the goal of this DI is to conflate equity with equality, right? And there are two very different concepts So equality means treating everyone the same, regardless of ethnic or racial affiliation, and equity demands legislating equal results from unequal causes. It's a nefarious idea that has to be explained properly so people can reject it outright. So those who uphold the principle of equity are attempting to advocate the idea that all men are actually born with or acquire talent, skills, and capabilities Of equal proportion in intelligence, strength, discipline, perseverance, frugality, temperance, tenacity, exercise of all rational faculty, wisdom, moral sensibility, uh, what else? A plethora of dispositions that determine outcomes. So equity advocates attempt to bypass or attempt to pass over on society the following idea. If such talents, capabilities, and dispositions were not equally allocated among the races and among individuals, then the state would need to artificially interfere and ensure that equality of outcomes and results preceded equality of opportunity. That is, they mandate equal results from unequal causes and equal reward for unequal performance.
1: No opportunities
0: arise as human beings are left free to pursue their values and exercise efforts on behalf of their lives. Values result from attributes persons possess which cannot be redistributed. So, equality of results, that is equity, advocates a sort of magical thinking. They take on disparity in income between the races as causally reducible to the residual effects of slavery. So what I call the equity appropriators sort of fail to realize that economic inequality is the inevitable result of the fact that human beings are not born equal. But they avoid also the fact that the United States was not founded on the principle of economic equality, but political equality. And that wealth is privately created by individual effort, or that wealth that is privately created by individual effort is not created on the assumption that the creator of that wealth will end up with an equal share of his wealth. Quite the opposite. As Yaron Brooks points out in his book Equal is Unfair, if I plant 10 apple trees on an island and Jack plants 5, one cannot say I have grabbed a bigger part of the island's apple pie, so to speak. Right? I have created more wealth than Jack, and I have left him no worse off. It would be absurd to say that I have stolen 50% of the island's wealth, Now, if Jack especially made a choice not to plant extra trees, having rather spent his time relaxing under a coconut tree, there is no reason why I should be penalized for the extra initiative I have taken in planting the extra apple trees and cultivating them. By participating in the massive welfare reparation programs of the 1960s, I think black Americans were complicit in their own stigmatization that came to be associated with the wealth extortion, wealthy Americans paid for their financial upkeep. So I think blacks sold out their autonomy, their sovereignty, and pride for entitlements that they were told they deserved. And they voluntarily evicted themselves from that competitive and venturesome realm in which the American dream is achieved. But the American dream was never achieved through a government handout. Now, the persistence of racism continues, but to causally link all disparities between blacks and whites to either slavery or the residual effects of slavery, such as Jim Crow, seems untenable. Now, in my last book, we What Do White Americans Owe Black People Racial Justice in the Age of Post Oppression?, I argued that not only did the 1964 Civil Rights Act and its attendant amendments outlaw racism, but that it morally transformed America in overturning a form of systemic racism that had been the norm. And today there are no policies directly aimed at destroying the lives of blacks. There are no laws that are punitive simply on the basis of racial ascription. So systemically, our public and private institutions are not suffused with attitudes, policies, and mores that would seek to keep blacks out of such institutions and, more importantly, outside the domain of the ethical and the pantheon of the human community. What generally has not been discussed, and which I do tackle at length in my book, are some of the pathologies that exist in the Black community that speak for so many of these disparities. Until the 1960s, poverty did not entail a social dysfunction in the Black community. The marriage rate in the Black community was higher than it was in the white community, despite economic deprivation and virulent racism. In 1925, for example, 8-5% of Black families were husband and wife raising their ch- children. Today, the out-of-wedlock birth among Black people is nearly 71%. Now, blacks are part of the sovereign mass, and the achievement of that status prior to the 1964 Civil Rights Act was not theirs to claim and enjoy entirely. Like all persons who, through legislative and judicial pr- processes, are admitted into the the ethical pantheon and the judicial pantheon, they have to face harsh truths. There will be inequities, inequalities, and disparities. But life itself is not predicated on equality, because again, we are not equal. In fact, disparity and inequality are the norm. What must be secured are the foundations of freedom and liberty and equality. For all. We'll take our final break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about Ron DeSantis and why I sort of i am siding with him on this uh, black education issue. Um, be back in a moment. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Hill, and you are listening to The Jason Hill Show. So again, Ron DeSantis uh, reiterated the state's rejection of a proposed nationwide advanced American Studies program, saying it pushed a political agenda of indoctrination. And the governor said his administration rejected the College Board's advancement placement African American Studies because, quote, we want education, not indoctrination, um, says that the course promotes the idea that modern American society oppresses black people, other minorities, and women, and that it includes a chapter on black queer studies that the administration finds inappropriate and um, uses articles by critics of capitalism. Okay, so yeah, the studies basically denigrating capitalism, indicting America. It also included one of America's most racist poets, um, Amiri Barako, um, who my colleague over at Front Page Magazine did a wonderful article, America's most racist poet is taught in the colleges across America. Here's an excerpt from the poet, Barack, Amira Barako, that, uh, I guess the scientist is claiming was included in the Black Studies program. Um, come up, Black Data, Nihilimus, rape the white girl, rape, cut their father their fathers, cut their mothers' throats. Um, in a poem published by his own press, he fantasizes about a race war. he says, Cracker, you may be wooden fire is what you need. Nigger, you may be fire and need to burn some wood. Allah speaks in through me. No. Yeah, it's easy to get bogged down in the details. Um, Let me say this about um, what I call the historical studies, um, victim studies or revolutionary studies, which is part of what Black Studies really, and Chicana studies and women's studies and post-colonial studies and queer studies and gay and lesbian studies are all about. So after I think after the passage of the 64 Civil Rights Act, um, blacks as historical victims had the insignia of moral innocence stamped upon them, right? And it gave them a great deal of social capital. In fact, more more social capital and political clout than they could have hoped for. And long after they had achieved that power and after they had been emancipated from the bondage of legal disenfranchisement, many experienced a sense of, I think, existential angst predicated on the question, what do we do with our lives now, right? So blacks were not only desirous of this power, but were equally demanding that it be accompanied by an attendant guilt suffered by whites, the kind of guilt rooted in, a history of moral oppression that sends a message on the order of, you've been a mean, rotten, mean-spirited bigot all your life. Now, such persons are sent a message that they need to spend their lives in search of repentance, acts of contrition, uh, atonement, redemption, and ultimate salvation. And in the end, short of annihilating whiteness from the earth, there is nothing that can be done to annihilate um, the black problem. So blacks were navigating their agency and identities in a sort of freer and more open society, and the blood they smelled was white guilt and embarrassment, okay? So there was no greater place to hand over the second installment of reparations, which I refer to as cultural reparations, to blacks than in our nation's universities. And the new appropriators of cultural black power were not content to win a seat in the universities from which they had been previously excluded, right? A phalanx of race hustlers entered the academy armed with a culturally and economically Marxist agenda to annihilate the world as they had lived in it and to remake it in their own revolutionary style. So this is where you had the rise of Afrocentrism and black power that sought to reject traditional institutions that from their perspective had been agencies created under the auspices of imperial racist courses. So these Black Studies race fighters who would declare openly that they were fighting false consciousness and mind colonization wanted their own ways of validating their experiences. So theirs was a revolt against the principles of the Enlightenment and of reason itself, which were taken to be constructs that were not just compatible with colonialism and racist, racist capitalism, but... Uh, but the very decolonization, the very colonization, of the black mind itself. So, in a companion to African American Studies, there's a professor I know actually quite well, uh, Lewis Gordon, uh, I think, and his wife um, pointed out that the founding of Black Studies was influenced by the Black Panthers' goal of decolonizing the minds of black people, and they write these these uh, philosophers and anthropologists. Quote, African American studies is an intrinsically politicized unit of the academy whose objective is to overcome false consciousness, a Marxist term created by white supremacy. Or to put it differently, to understand that to understand what W. E. Du Bois called the double consciousness, which after the nineteen sixties was understood more as a contested truth. So black studies was the forerunner today of today's overtly politicized classroom. Right, the university was an institution that granted moral accreditation to black nationalism, and this deferential act in turning the nation's classrooms into bastions of indoctrination and activist sites came at a cost. Right, social justice, uh, canonical revisions, and propaganda are inimical to academic rigor. But radical blacks almost embraced the principle of arrested intellectual development because the standards of rigor, research, and qualitative judgments were viewed as couched in white society's notions of hierarchical ranking, methods of appraisal, and patterns of exclusion. So the goal of black studies programs was not just to decolonize the minds of black students and to reorient them away from a Eurocentric model of thinking grounded in the value of the Enlightenment, universalism, and disciplinary pluralism. These individuals were after power. Black studies, per se, was not a real discipline like philosophy or history or psychology or political science, English literature or sociology. It had no methodology. And pedagogically speaking, it was intellectually bankrupt. So when we say that a discipline has a, a, you know, a methodology... To support it, we mean it has a foundational anchor to give it coherence, sensibility in the literal sense, and the ability to yield conclusions and make judgments that are intelligible, comprehensible, and perceptible to the average human mind. So the rules and procedures cannot be arbitrary, they can't be subjective, they can't be based on moods and whims, right? They must be, uh, in some sense, consonant. Uh, with the nature of each discipline. So it is, for example, inappropriate for a literary scholar to use the methods employed by a physicist to analyze 19th century Victorian poetry. But Black Studies was radical and revolutionary in nature. The goal was activism and to establish Black power through indoctrination. Today, it's all about ethnicity and racism, right? The Black Studies programs of the 60s established the anti-intellectual standard that permitted Rutgers University to declare in 2020 that grammar is racist and that it would be focusing on critical grammar, that is, Black English. In, all, in, the, in fall of the same year, the University of Chicago would go even further and refuse to allow any of its incoming doctoral students in English a place unless their studies incorporated some hodgepodge of social justice linked to Black Lives Matter. The idea that Black Studies programs were and continue to be a form of cultural reparations is also sort of premised on my larger, larger argument that the 1964 Civil Rights Act has been participating, as I said, in a series of incremental reparative acts directed towards Black American uplift. Um So I think I would want to say that Black Studies was a form of cultural reparations and not just because it was conducted, you know, under the auspices of administrative bodies run by powerful white people who funneled thousands of dollars into a a pseudo-discipline. It was a form of cultural reparations because these bureaucratic bodies sanctioned the well-publicized agenda of these victims and their activists, revolutionary studies phenomena that would grant more license the creation of women's studies, as I said, post colonial studies, queer studies, fat studies yeah, there's fat studies, disability studies, ableist studies, chicana studies, and a and conjuries of other programs heavily index the postmodernism and cultural Marxism as their cultural grid. So, DeSantis knows the sort of Marxism and the Marxist principles behind black studies, which I think is why he's weary of having them implemented in schools in Florida. And he's right. The race fighters, okay, and even genuine activists, they were out um, to, to, to sort of establish a new world order, and they wanted to get even by overthrowing the system. So, uh, in the spirit of France Fanon, they wanted to substitute one species of mankind with another. And this this inevitably sets out to change the order of the world. It is, it is putatively an agenda for chaos. I mean, the substitution of one species of mankind with another was, that's crazy, but it was framed by an agenda which set out to decolonize Black people from white and western educational paradigms. So... The race fighters were academic activists inspired by Black Panther's ethos, by the Black Panther's ethos, which they sought to emulate and promulgate inside the classroom. And this ethos, translated into literal form, was a creation of a new type of human being who would be an atavistic, non-American, Black nationalist filled with racial pride, besotted with power, and a maniacal will to impose his agenda on the rest of America. So the Black Power ethos that charged Black studies was fueled by a view that saw white America as colonists. And the colonized Blacks had been in such a state since 1619 when the alleged first slave ship arrived in Virginia. So they claimed, in truth, the first ship contained not slaves but indentured servants. And the way in which these new negritude stood in diametric opposition to what Martin Luther King Jr. had advocated and fought for must be emphasized. Because waiting in the wings for the imprimatur of official freedom, that is, no legal barriers to prevent them from pressing rights claims, they co-opted and bullied an obsequious set of cowardly bureaucratic babbits into submitting to their demands all over the United States. So you had student strikes at A broad swath of universities such as Columbia, Amherst, Harvard, Cornell, Yale, and Howard compelled university administrators to establish Black Studies programs all over the country. So, (coughs) excuse me, by 1970, most American universities had Black Studies programs on their campuses, and these cultural reparation programs meant to assuage the anger, rage, and nihilistic impulses of students who, had just been the beneficiaries of a painful and protracted civil rights struggle, were generally not seen as educational programs, but as ideological indoctrination units. The programs like the separatist movements among several Black student organizations today were not designed to improve or create interracial relations or understanding as unified Americans, or to embody the real history and the contributions that so many Blacks have made to American life, which is just part of American history. They were meant to establish Black autonomy and self sovereignty to the level of a cult. So in some sense, it was the beginning of the coddling of the American mind by progressive administrators who felt guilty for the injustice Blacks had suffered by members of their race. And cultural autonomy for Blacks is a given in today's universities. The chickens of the 1960s have come home to roost. The hatchlings and the surrogates are running the universities today. And the same con game, folks, is being foisted on our K-12 students. Ron DeSantis is seeing this. He is seeing this, and he's saying no. Well, I'm going to say cancel culture for another episode because we're gone we've gone over the one hour mark and um i don't want to tax you too much but uh we're going to be taking a break uh i'll be off next week and returning uh the week after that so this is the jason hill show thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode i hope it wasn't too heavy in uh, the detail and the analyses, but I think, folks, that it's important that we understand the reason and the roots and the foundations behind much of what uh, counts as phenomenal, affecting our society today. So goodbye, and see you in two weeks' time. Jason Hill Show is a project of the David Horowitz Freedom Center and front page magazine. Unauthorized reproduction of this podcast without express or written consent is prohibited.